I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Dharma. <laughs> wow. I mix it up, you know, why not? You can tell it's post-Sashin. Everybody's so easy with the mistakes. Oh, it's okay. We just did the Jizo Sashin. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, this monastery is deeply devoted to practicing with Jizo Bodhisattva. And in brief, a bodhisattva in the Buddhist tradition is kind of like a saint, but not exactly. They're not a historical person necessarily. They're a being on the path to becoming a Buddha and make sure everyone else on the path uh, is, is also awakened. Their mission is to relieve suffering. And there's lots of different kinds of bodhisattvas. I was sitting there this morning thinking, well, they're kind of really like superheroes. That's really what bodhisattvas are. And Jizo Bodhisattva's purview is uh, children, women, children, uh, children who have died, people, in a, in a crossroads, travelers, firefighters. Because Jizo goes into all of the six realms of existence, which include hell realms. And so helps to alleviate suffering in, in many realms, even the suffering in heavenly kinds of realms, because even those are impermanent. So we want to share a little bit about what transpired in the past week, all of the practice here. And I want to be sure to invite those of you who are here from outside visiting today that part of our retreat was we made uh, traveling Jizo shrines out of a little box, like a little mint type box about the size of one of those with the ceramic Jizo images that are made here that Chosen Roshi created the mold for. And so we were able to um, work on those, decorate them, and really making it a, a, a practice of um, awareness and creativity tapping into the deep creativity, this, this infinite well that is our life. So those of you who are here, please be sure to, uh, at lunchtime, go to the cafeteria just outside where the tables are. And look, we have all of the boxes that were made are out there for you to look at. And also some ceramic Jesus that got uh, glazed this time. The ceramic Jesus were made last year at the Jesus Sashin, but there wasn't time to glaze them, so people did that as well. And also some painted rocks. 
We had Jizo. a great time. Jizo rocks, by the way. Jizo rocks. Why would somebody want a little tiny shrine? So having the shrine as a portable shrine is a way to bring with you the qualities of Jizo Bodhisattva as a reminder. So for instance, I would carry a Jizo, uh, I carried a Jizo when I traveled. And um, when I was visiting my dad in the hospital when he was dying, it was really helpful for me to have that and just leave it on the um, leave it in the room so it felt like Jizo could watch over him while I couldn't. And it's a way for us to remind ourselves to ask for help sometimes. We can't do this life alone. We aren't alone. There's no possibility of that. And so to acknowledge that and be open to the life that can flow in when we call upon the qualities that really are in each one of us. And Chosen and I will talk about those qualities. Shall I start? You start? Okay. Let me say Yeah. You know how if you've traveled a lot at first, it's kind of interesting and even exciting to be in a hotel room in a strange city. And then if you travel a lot, it's really a pain. So you take your Jizo altar and you put it up in your, it tucks into the corner of your suitcase and then you put it up in the hotel room and it changes the whole, the whole ambiance. I will say too that there was one person who shared that um, when they were making their Jizo for themselves, it was just kind of a neutral experience. But then they decided to give it to someone else, and it really flowed. The just love and care and creativity and enjoyment was completely different. So these things do have a way of transforming our state of mind, even as they're being made. So carrying them with you is powerful. And the qualities of Jizo that we want to share a little bit about and then hopefully hear from some of you are benevolence, optimism, oh, benevolence, where then we'll do determination, optimism, fearlessness, and vow. What wonderful qualities. Sometimes I feel like um, when we're, te we're teaching it, I call it the pate de foie gras method, where we're like, stuffing you full of stuff. So let's just do one. Let's start with one. Benevolence. Okay. We're just going to share about what each one, how we've practiced with each one a little bit. So for me, benevolence is just a, a, a large-hearted kindness. But it's also, I think, has embedded in it a generosity that I'm going to assume the best from, from, from people that I encounter. That I assume that people are doing their best, even if it looks really difficult. That is a way to meet each person 
much more open-heartedly and leave room for something that's way beyond my story of a person. So that's one way to practice with benevolence. So I agree that and that uh, for me it's an attitude of um, open-mindedness and just noticing when I automatically judge a new person when they come in the door, you know, and what criteria. And it's nonsense, of course, because I don't know the person at all. And so when I notice that automatic little judgment, then I make a note, get to know that person in, in depth. And uh, on my, I think, Instagram feed, I get the word of the day. I don't know if anybody gets that. It's very, it, the guy is great. But last week the word was sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R. And it means to, or sonder ring, the process, means to open your awareness that each person has a complex life, a rich and complex life, and there's no way that we can know it, especially on our, in our initial contact with them. In fact, it takes years. Hogan and I have been married, I don't know, 36 or something years, and I'm still finding out new things about him. So to know that, you know, when somebody comes in the door and I judge them, I'm just seeing like a, like a paper doll, a flat figure and making a judgment. It's, so that's one of my practices is sondering, just realizing this, is, this person has all kinds of depths, which I don't know, and I like to learn about them. But that basic attitude that, um, that you talked about of, of open-heartedness, I really learned from the forest and from the trees, especially the trees. That's so interesting, like in our August retreat, Grasses and Trees, it's a, it's a whole week of lear- sitting with trees, leaning up against trees, occasionally climbing not too far in trees. Um, and then once the human mind quiets, then to ask the tree about the issue you're an issue you're working with. And it's it's very interesting. You know, they're all connected underground and communicating with each other all the time. They're not there's not really a single tree like we would think of a single tree. And then you can ask them things like, Well, so how do you feel about being cut down? Or how do you feel about um, the upcoming political election? <laughs> it gets very funny. You know? <laughs> Which candidate would you choose? And do you think Joe Biden's too old to be, you know? <laughs> so the trees have been very helpful in, in um, teaching me basic benevolence. And then the practice that I do day to day, besides you know not judging people and so on, is um, here we do gasho and passing. So as we pass each other on the sidewalks, uh, we just stop briefly and bow and then go on. And my, I felt like I need to add to that practice because you know how the mind can take a practice and then like, just like trivialize it. So I thought I needed to add some depth to it. So at first I was saying silently, uh, I'm glad you're in my life. 
But then I realized, no, wait, that's not quite accurate, and I change it to, I'm glad you are my life. Because right now, this is my life. What I can experience right here is my life. All of you are my life. You are the woven fabric of my life. And then if I'm uh, downtown and I'm passing people I don't know, um, I think, especially with women, there's a tendency to like close up a bit for protection. So most women know this. If you look up accidentally into a strange man's eyes, you have like less than a second to look down or you could be in trouble. So just we have that awareness. And it took me years, and I'm still working on not doing that, not looking at people uh, directly in the eyes. Depends on the situation. You don't want to be foolish, of course. But instead, what I do passing a stranger on the street is send loving kindness from my heart to their heart. So I imagine a tube, and loving kindness is going into their heart. Because I know they everybody can need it, needs it. You were going to talk about Oh, yeah, me. Okay. So the next quality of Jizo Bodhisattva is great determination. So uh, some people spoke about a very common phenomenon. It used to happen to me all the time. You've signed up for Sashin. You're in the car, and then you go like, why did I sign up for this Sashin? Why am I? I have so many things to do at home. And this is crazy, you know. And so that those doubts have to have to be overcome by the determination that signed up for the session, right? And sometimes, you know, it's kind of in the balance and you don't know which way it's going to tip. Well, I'll go, but then, you know, um, I can tell them that I have this and then I'll get to leave early if I need to. It's like like escape, uh, escape door. Hmm? Um, and then the second day of session is again when it arises. First day of session. Most people are like, oh, okay, I'm here. I'm just going to give it my best. And then you realize how this backlog of exhaustion you came with. And it overtakes you. And the second day you're like, when is the bell going to ring? And then I often say if sheer force of mind could, could make the bell ring, it would happen all the time. <laughs> <laughs> And then the inner critic comes in, you know, and then, like, judges every period of your sitting. And that doesn't help at all. That makes things worse. So that's what, oh, those are instances where great determination, that underlying longing for a deeper life, to see life and experience life in a different way, that's when that longing has to be recalled and added into great determination. When, when things get, get difficult or the inner critic cre- creates a lot of self-doubt. And then another practice to do when you lose courage in the, in the practice. Oh, besides, so if, if the, you know, there's a difference between just like assessing your practice and then the inner critic's assessment of your practice. So if you had a period when you're sleepy, you just go, wow, I was sleepy that period. And then there are various ways to deal with that. Rather than, you know, that was a wasted period. Like, 
if you're going to spend another period just drowsing, there's no point in being here. That's the inner critic. See the difference? Sting, objective. So we have to separate just objective awareness of what was going on and maybe make some adjustments from the personalized sting and, and just let that go. Knowing that the inner critic's worried we're going to change. Well, we are going to change. We're changing all the time. So then uh, another practice, really important practice that sustained me when great determination was flagging was asking for help. And we talked about that during session. So people say, whoa, who do we ask for help? Like, I don't really believe in invisible beings. I never had any proof that they were invisible beings. Well, they're invisible beings. They're invisible things happening all around us all the time. Um, so some of them are called 911 calls, and some of them are called comedy shows, and some of them are called um, uh, criminal shows and mysteries. And, you know, they're all here in the air around us all the time, all the cell phone calls. So we just don't have the right receiver to tune into it all, thank goodness. Um, or our, it would drive our minds crazier than the constant conversation in our mind to receive everybody's. There was a movie about God. I don't know. I can't remember what the name of it was, but God was getting all these telephone calls all the time from people, you know, asking for help, and you're just like, stop. It's too much. You can't keep up with it all. So that's like our mind. We can't keep up with it. And then, okay, I forgot where I was going. Anywhere. <laughs> anyway, this is post-session. <laughs> so um, there are, why not have invisible beings up here, out here? You know, why not? That we just don't, we haven't tuned into them yet. And let set invisible beings aside like devas and so on. Um, there are all the ancestors in the past who we know went through all these, encountered all these obstacles and stayed determined and, and saw them through to the other side. And often when the biggest obstacle is thrown up, the most interesting thing is going to happen if you can just stay with it. So once you see that happening, you have that experience a few times that you face the obstacle and you move past it. It gives you great courage to go on. Yeah, it seems like all these qualities are embedded in each other in many ways that de determination has vow embedded in it that, that we discern that vow and, and the way to do that is to practice and become clear. But once that's discerned how to keep going, how to keep going. And in my experience, one practice in, well, in, in practice and in life is, is letting go of the outcome. Being a, a mental health practitioner for many years and working in environments of high intensity, high volume, high paperwork, um, for many years, uh, had, had gotten really, had a couple of episodes of really crispy burnout 
And one of the things I really learned from that was the importance of letting go of the outcome. You mean you're not in charge of all of cause and effect? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty miserable, right, when we think that we, we are in charge of all of cause and effect. Or that everything should be the way I think it should be. Everyone should be the way I think they should be. <laughs> so what a relief that can be to let go of the outcome, but to maintain the connection with not trying to control the outcome. What do I want to see happen? I want it to match my idea. Rather, how, how do I want to be with the world as it emerges? How do I want to be? So that's one way to, to connect with determination. I don't have to be in charge of the outcome, but I can just keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up. So that also requires some optimism. Did we do that? You did optimism? No. Did we do optimism? No, we didn't. We didn't do optimism yet. Go ahead. Yeah. You can think of optimism sometimes as hope, but again, that's kind of like I hope for things to turn out exactly the way I want them to. But in many ways, optimism, in my experience, is like acceptance and meeting this life on life's terms, as they say. And the optimism is that I can meet that, that, that it can be met, not just me, but everyone, that we're all uh, imbued with, the, with exactly what we need to meet our life, to have optimism, not just in my own ability to meet my life, but that every person has the same capacity. We're all, we already are this. And that that can be cultivated, that that can be uncovered, given the right conditions. To me, that's optimism. One of the tenets of at least Soto Zen practice, um, but I would say most Zen practice, is you already have what you're seeking for at what you're practicing for. So we're already completely imbued with what we call original nature or Buddha nature, which consists of wisdom and compassion. Uh, in, the, in Buddhism, those are the characteristics of, of awakening, manifesting greater and greater wisdom and compassion. And, and then I also think a sense of humor is important because it means that you've dropped this angst about the self that keeps reifying the self, right? And you can just see your yourself uh, with a sense of humor. Now, not always. There are times when we are sad and we grieve and we're facing difficulties, but underneath, there's something that sustains us 
And so our practice helps us touch that original peace, is what we were emphasizing in this session. The underlying peace that we could feel in the room when we're meditating and outside in nature. And beyond that peace, or access to that peace, comes through a quiet mind. The Wesley were emphasizing a quiet mind, a really quiet mind. Not a mind that's going like, mm-hmm, I'm really being quiet. <laughs> but a really, truly quiet mind. And when we can really enter, even briefly, a truly quiet mind, we, we drop down into original nature. And then we don't have to be thinking all the time. We just think when it's necessary. And actually we do pondering. So it's very interesting. Uh, I'll watch people bring an issue to Hogan sometimes. And Hogan will say, let me think about that for a second. And then I can watch him drop into pondering, which is different than thinking about it. So dropping into that quiet mind. And then things just emerge. Wisdom Beyond wisdom, we call it, emerges. It's different from our, oh, what should I do about this? So, for example, on days when I had to give a talk at a conference or something, and I'm thinking, how should I organize this, and blah, 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 then I I know now to sit down and meditate and clear my mind completely. And then there's a part of me saying, you don't have time to do that because you're going to get your slide, you know, your PowerPoint in order. But um, I just ignore that part now and sit down and, like, drop the issue of a talk on this topic. And then, woo, stuff just starts coming up. Just makes it just clarity emerges from getting out of the way. So when that happens, you gain optimism, actually, that there's something you have access to. And the more you practice, the more reliably you have access to it that I can, I can deal with things. Not me, but me as a channel. Mm-hmm. Kind of an empty channel. Um, the, the other aspect, so the first aspect of optimism is everybody has this. Everybody's imbued, we say, with, um, you know, whatever we call it. It doesn't really have a name, but it has the qualities of wisdom, compassion, and a sense of humor. Then also to realize that even the Buddha, who was a spiritual genius, you know, had to practice with different teachers, be graduated by those teachers, and keep going. This is a this is a lifetime or lifetime's journey. But isn't that wonderful that we can just keep on deepening? There's no like, oh, I graduated, now what? It's just like, it just keeps opening if we keep on practicing. And it's hard work, but the, but the rewards are, are clear. And also to know that we're doing this for, for the past generations that couldn't do it. You know, our great-great-grandparents and so on, all the way back, that maybe lived such a hard-scrabble life that they didn't have time for spiritual practice or to look deeply into anything. 
And therefore, they were angry, or therefore, they were abusive, or therefore, you know, whatever difficulties they had in their life that they didn't have the capacity to clear up, we can stop the chain of karma going forward. I used to work in child abuse, and you just see it generation after generation. Women marrying domestic violence partners over and over again. But for at least for the people in our family who couldn't do it, we can stop that, which is something they couldn't do, and it's a gift to them. So that gives us optimism. And also, the gift it's a gift forward, of course, to future generations that we're not passing that on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the next quality of Jiza Bodhisattva is great fearlessness. So this is tricky, you know, there are lots of situations where fear arises. But if you rec- recognize that in fear or anxiety, there's also anticipation. It's the same energy. And sometimes we're afraid to try something because we're, the inner critic is anticipating disaster, like don't make, don't, don't make a box. Don't make a Jesus altar. It's going to be stupid. <laughs> but if you can just tran- you know, transform that fear into anticipation, well, let's just see what happens. We don't know. We didn't even start. And then into a kind of childlike uh, approach to things, which is fearless. You know, kids who haven't been mistreated, they're, they're pretty fearless. And the parents have to watch out for their fearlessness often. So now, of course, we've, you know, in our chant, we say all demons arise from ignorance. So that's ignorance. That is a wonderful word. It's like ignorance is excusable, right? Oh, I, I, I did this because I didn't know. So ignorance can be cured with training and education and so on. So I often say that all of us have done harm, intentionally or unintentionally. We've all done stupid things. We've all made lots of mistakes, but that's where we learn. But if we had known ahead of time that doing this would lead to that kind of harm to ourselves or others, we wouldn't have done it. So that's just pure ignorance. And ignorance can be cured. So isn't that wonderful? And then take refuge in the one bright mind. You know, all the, and may I know that all demons arise from ignorance. And I'm, so <laughs> I said this the other day. So there's a very cute little, I think it's on, I can't remember, Instagram or YouTube, but this mother is kind of scolding her, her daughter, who's about three, and she and the daughter goes, I'm just a baby. <laughs> I'm just a baby. And the mom kind of pulls back. <laughs> but if you can say that to yourself every time you make a mistake. You know, I'm just a baby. I'm just learning how to live my life. I haven't used that mantra before. (laughs) 
One of the mantras I like to use to invoke fearlessness is, uh, right now it's like this. Right now it's like this. Because so often fearfulness is about what might happen, what's what I'm pretty sure convinced could happen, the worst thing that could happen. And that's not real. It's not what's here. So right now it's like this helps to be with whatever it is. And then the realization that, and maybe this is true for you, that some of the most difficult things of my life turned out to really be the things, the very things that have really served in a, in a very positive way, the lessons learned or the ways that I've been changed or the way that I might choose to meet something. And so, or <laughs> mistakes, indeed, can be transformed. So that does take some faith, but that does also help with the fear of making mistakes, the fear of, that's one of my greatest hits. Maybe you have a greatest hits list. Oh my gosh, I'm doing it wrong which there's ample opportunity for that here at Azendo, right? There's all the forms and all the things, all the opportunities. You can do it wrong. And then what? Basically, you get caught and held, and we continue on. We flow on in fearlessness. And then vow, great vow. What is our true north? What is, What are the qualities that we want to return to? We do a lot of work with vow here in ZCO. We have a shrine of vows that you're also encouraged to go see. And a whole process, we've had sashin and, and retreats on discerning our true vow, which is very important work. What is, what is this life? How will it serve? And so that is something that goes beyond liking and disliking. And certainly we all encountered that and we heard from people who, who encountered that on their way into the session or even during it. There's, of course, parts of, why did I come here? I don't like this. Yay, I'm so glad I'm here. This is so joyful. I'm really loving this. And that if that was our only guiding light, I'm going to only do things I like or try to avoid the things I don't like, it doesn't actually lead to anywhere good. There's something else that we need to discern, a different light to guide us, and that can be through vow. Do you want to say your vows? Well, one of my vows is to always return to practice. And you're welcome to share in that vow if you'd like. So that means that no matter what happens, no matter what my life looks like, I will always return to practice. In a moment of clarity, that is what emerges as most important. In lay life, I would always sign up for my next retreat right after the retreat I got back from, because that's when it's clearest. That's when I can see how obviously this is the most important thing. To always return to practice. Also, 
another one of my vows is to make mistakes with gusto. <laughs> it's good to be reminded of that. And to realize there's nothing to attain. The first time I heard that phrase, it about knocked me out. I couldn't believe that we were not here to try to improve ourselves or get something. But it's true. So I think we all know that it's kind of easy to lose track of where we're headed in life and get distracted. And so many people end up um, at the end of their life with regrets or wondering, how did I get here? I had intended to do this and become this or study this, and it just got lost in the busyness of life. And the hospice nurses say that one of the saddest things is for people to die with a lot of regrets. So it really helps to have a vow. A vow takes your life energy and packages it um, so that it can be directed in the direction you really want to go. And then the vow reminds you of that um, periodically. And the other thing I, th I say is, is vow is like an internal GPS system. So you don't like start out for, Ch for Chicago and end up somehow in Louisiana. Not that Louisiana is bad, but it wasn't where you wanted to go. Um, so and it and it so it's I love the voice of GPS because if you don't take the turn that it says, you know it doesn't say you stupid idiot. I told you to turn right. Now I have to recalculate. <laughs> it, just, it just says at the next light. <laughs> turn right and then turn left again. You know, it's just very just very supportive and kind. And so if we can cultivate that voice instead of the inner critic voice, it can be very helpful. But vows keep us on, on track. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we have, a, as, as Joman said, we have classes on vows, we have retreats on vows to help people formulate vows. Um, there can be a difficulty if the means is confused with the vow. So the vow is the deepest intention, and then the means can be so many means. Like if the means is to help help people in life so that they don't suffer unnecessarily, that huge truck that comes once a week and collects everything in our dumpster, that person is carrying out that vow. Because if the, if the garbage piled up like it has in places where people weren't collecting it, it's serious. Rats, disease, stink, you know. So the vow can be to help relieve people's suffering or help them, in my case, learn how to relieve their own suffering. And then the means can be all kinds of things. So we shouldn't get stuck in the means. Um, in terms of practice, Often after we've done a, re a vows retreat, people say, I'm going to say my vows every day, once a day. And then what I've found is gradually, I, I don't need to say it every day, but some people do that right when they first sit down for meditation. Um, but I, also, I find if I, I can tell now if I get sort of wobbly or irritable, ah, time to say my vows. That I, that'll help me, and it just automatically helps me 
get on track. And part of, of saying the vows is asking for help with the vows. So that's, you know, that other principle of you're not doing this yourself. Ask for vows. Ask for help. So I just wanted to realize, read um, one of my vows from the vows book. So it starts out with, Jesus Bodhisattva, King of Vows, please help me to clarify and accomplish my deepest life vows. Or Hogan calls it deepest heart's aspiration. And then the third vow is, because it's relevant here, my third vow is to establish great vows in monastery as a place of peace, beauty, spiritual renewal, and ever-deepening practice for many generations to come. So all of you are carrying out that vow. I can't do it by myself. But everyone who comes here for a retreat, for an hour to work in the garden, everyone who is here as residents, no matter how brief or long their time of residency, and particularly those who become ordained, are carrying out that vow. And then, you know, the anxious mind says, well, Hogan and I are in our 70s, and what's going to happen? But if the vow is clear and you don't let anxiety cloud it, then people come along who will pick up the vow and carry it on for the next generation. So we have Pancho and Jomon who just said, can we meet with you at a restaurant and talk about something important? And what they wanted to talk about is they were willing to step forward if that would be helpful to carry out this vow so that this place is available. When we talked to Harada Roshi about establishing a monastery, he said, you establish a monastery for a thousand years. Like, that's nothing that we ever think of here in the U.S. I mean, democracy may disappear way before our form of democracy, a thousand years. We don't know. But to have that great vow calls forth the means that don't have to be just you. The means will arise. Uh, and this is just one. You know, everybody, everybody here is part of that means of carrying this this place, and the place may not endure, but this ability to offer deep practice uh, will go forward through all of our vows. Thank you.